Let's start our Dhamma talk as usual by first paying homage to the Buddha, then by taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha, and finally we'll take the eight precepts. Namo tassa bhagavata arahata sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavata arahata sammasambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavata arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhamma Saranamagachami Dhammamma Saranamagachami Sangamma Saranamagachami Dutiampi Buddhamma Saranamagachami Dutiampi Dhammamma Saranamagachami Dutiampi Sangamma Saranamagachami Dhatiampi Buddhamma Saranamagachami Dhatiampi Dhammamma Saranamagachami Dhatiampi Sangamma Saranamagachami Anatipata Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Adena Dana Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Abramacharya Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Musavada Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Sura Miraya Majapamadatana Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Viramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Natcha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda 
Vilipana Dharana Mandana Vivusanatana Vieramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Vieramani Sekapadam Samadhyami Idamisilam Magga Fala Nyanasa Pachayo Hotu Apamadena Sampadita Is too loud? No? topic of our discourse certainly this evening is concept and ultimate reality. And with this topic we shall uh, connect back to the preceding talk given last night. And there are more things to be explained in detail. Now, just to briefly refresh your memory, the texts speak of four ultimate realities, and certain those consist of number one, consciousness, chitta, number two, mental factors, chitta number three, rupa, materiality, and the last one is. Nibbana. There you go. And uh, the opposite to the four ultimate realities are, or consists in uh, conventional reality. Conventional truth, wohara sacha, or commonly accepted truth, samuddhita sacha. Conventional reality or conceptual reality at times certainly also gets referred to as Banyati. So Banyati, the Pali uh, for uh, conceptual reality, and Paramatta, the Pali term for ultimate certain reality. Now, As much as possible, I'll try to, or let us proceed step by step, starting with the most basic aspect. We're practicing 
mindfulness meditation in the tradition of the Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw of Burma as based on you know, the teachings of the Buddha and in particular as based on discourses you know, such as the Satipatthana Sutta, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta and a number of related discourses. Now, in the Mahasi tradition of Vipassana meditation, we use what as the primary object for the sitting meditation? The rising falling movement of the abdomen. Now, we might, or a beginning retreatant might observe the rising movement of the abdomen and experience it as an inflating balloon. Now, what here is the concept, what here is ultimate reality? Balloon is a concept, there you go. And uh, experiencing the falling movement as a deflating balloon would necessarily also be a concept. Now, when, however, we manage to go beyond this image of the rising movement and falling movement as a balloon, as an inflating and deflating balloon, and instead you know, we manage to observe the rising movement from its very beginning through the middle until its very end. We know uh, the various sensations uh, that are specific to the rising movement, uh, such as uh, expansion, such as tension, the tension increasing, coming to a peak, the movement gradually slowing down, coming to a stop, etc. This would be closer to ultimate reality. But is that Satna the very end? Is that all one could see in regard to a rising movement? There's more, to see. There's more to be seen. There you go. Now, when it comes to an object, such as a pain, a common friend of, or maybe more accurately said, a common enemy of that retreatants. Now, such a pain, again, is worth looking at. Namely, first of all, the term is already very specific or not? It's a very general statement, a very general uh, uh, term. Now, from our own practice, we know that there is just one single standard type of pain that all retreatants experience in history. There's not. And we know from experience that there's a great variety of pain, and hence the term 
and, and a great variety of pains, and hence the term pain is certainly still uh, pretty much just a concept. Now, when we perceive a pain to be something non-changing, and we further perceive it as being as hurting us, and we then also perceive it as our enemy, I mean, this would probably qualify as a concept. So we have a certain idea about what a pain is all about, but reality may look quite different. And when we carefully investigate a pain, what might, what might we find? And uh, the pain being totally non-changing? No? Rapid constant flux. A rapid constant flux, yes. And do we really need to uh, relate to the pain as our enemy? Not uh, that, neither. No. Another example is a generally or a, a term of conventional language headache and we all sooner or later come across an, or will at times experience a headache this term headache is once again very precise it's just another general term and it's just another concept. And if we satisfy ourselves with that, are we really going to know the true nature of that headache? Not. And when we then make the e extra effort to mindfully and diligently investigate a headache, what might we find? Amy? A headache is coming and going. A headache is coming and going, yes. And, and the headache is consisting of what? Lots of stuff. Well, lots of stuff, such as? <laughs> You're still general? <laughs> Movement, pressure. Heat. Uh -huh. Throbbing, movement, hardness. Voila. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And so, with that, that kind of an understanding of a headache is very different you know, from you know, the earlier on general or conventional uh, term headache. And so, the term headache does it truly represent the 
actual event of headache. It's just a term. It's just a concept. Now, the Venumasi Sangha of Burma, in connection with concepts and ultimate reality, has certainly coined the following uh, statement, namely, when we see concepts, we do not see ultimate reality. When we see ultimate reality, we no longer see concepts. There you go. Now, whenever a situation arises where an object is there, and we simply just see the concept of it, then definitely we want to go beyond this and not get caught up in the concept. Leave the concept behind and instead uh, focus or opt for a very careful uh, investigation of the true nature of the respective object. Now, still further, when we grow up, we are quite naturally thinking of our own body as having a certain form or contour or um, outline. And certainness so a person, a tall, skinny person, will think of his or her uh, body as being of a rather long uh, form and skinnish, skinny mm, mm, uh, uh, composition or condition. Now, a person of uh, short height, and let's say maybe a bit uh, overweight, will see himself or herself just in that certain way, namely as being of a short height and a bit overweight. Now, we grow up like this, we live like this, thinking in terms of the body as having a definite um, outline. And what seems so compact and such um, a solid reality, how could it be any other than that? In the course of the meditation practice, what happens? The boundaries become indistinct. The boundaries become indistinct. There you go. And certainly it could happen that certain retreatants note at the beginning of a sitting session, 
place one hand on, on the other and in the midst of the sitting session it appears as if both hands have merged and have become one. Or it might happen that the body seems or certain body parts are undergoing distortions are distorted in one way or another may appear to be bigger than one is usually used to may appear smaller than one is used to may be totally out of proportion and then certain body parts might be missing and like David Sutner said the outline might become somewhat indistinct. Now when this certain experience is there will one see the form of the will one still see the form or the outline of the body as as being solid or not as being an ultimate reality a perceived ultimate reality or not hmm? no longer there you go now sooner or later one gets used to this we typically also grow up with a notion that every physical pain or other predominant sensation can be attributed or comes along with a very specific location in the body. Now, upon a careful mindful investigation of what truly happens in our own meditation practice, we will at times experience the following situation. A pain is there and we can no longer precisely attribute a precise location to it. Does this mean our practice is going downhill? Is anything wrong with our practice? Not necessarily. And this might certainly happen more and more often and eventually one realizes oh this is the new uh, normal and in a case like this a retreatant simply has to focus his or her attention on the most predominant sensation irrespective of you know, the fact or irrespective of whether the location of that sensation is obvious or not. So we start out 
with location as what? An ultimate reality or as a concept? As a concept. And in the course of the practice, the concept becomes, or location becomes obvious that this is just a concept and does not represent uh, ultimate reality. Now, along with the Venerabhasi Saido's statement, when the outline of the body becomes indistinct, blurred, fuzzy, or and we can no longer ascribe a, a very specific location to an object, then this is actually not a problem whatsoever. We just let go of the concept of a location of objects and we simply focus on the actual sensation. And with that, if we do observe very carefully, we will come to know ultimate reality. Now, there's still more. The Satipatthana Sutta, as well as the, or specifically the Ma Satipatthana Sutta, so you know, the uh, great discourse, or yeah, great discourse on uh, the contemplation of uh, mindfulness or establishment of mindfulness, now contains the following passage, as certainly given in uh, the second division of the Diganikaya, section 294. Again, O monastics and lay retreatants, a retreatant reviews this body however it may be placed or disposed. In terms of the elements, there are in this body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element. Just as if a skilled butcher or his or her assistant, having slaughtered a cow, were to sit at a crossroads with the carcass divided into portions, so too a monastic, a lay retreatant, reviews this very body, namely in terms of the elements. There are in this body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element. So one abides contemplating the body in the body, internally, externally, and both, and one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world, and that is how uh, a retreatant abides contemplating the body in the body. Translation is by um, Morris Walsh. Now, 
when we observe fatness some when we label observe and with this come to know the nature of some predominant object material object arising in the body then the various elements will be involved in to various certain degrees now the great essentials are called elements dhatu in the sense that they bear their own intrinsic natures atano sabhavam darinti in the Pali scriptural language so they cannot be further reduced they are irreducible the earth element is so called because like the earth it serves as a support or a foundation for the coexisting material phenomena the word the Pali word patavi comes from a root meaning to expand or spread out and thus the earth element represents the principle of extension the earth element as the characteristic of hardness the function of acting as a foundation for the other primary elements and other derived matter and manifestation as receiving its proximate cause is said to be the other three great essentials both hardness and softness are modes in which the earth element is experienced by the sense of touch beyond hardness and softness we could add uh, roughness and uh, smoothness and the like now in observing some predominant physical uh, object we might certainly also notice that certainly in uh, to at least derivatively notice the water element the water element or fluidity is the material factor that makes different particles of matter cohere thereby preventing them from being scattered about its characteristic is trickling or oozing its function is to intensify the coexisting material states and it is manifested as the holding together or cohesion of material phenomena its proximate cause is certainly the other three great essentials now the abhinama holds that unlike you know, the other three great essentials the water element cannot be physically sensed but must be known inferentially from the cohesion of uh, observed matter now in 
observing one and certainly the same bodily formation, we might also notice that, at least to some extent, the fire element Dejudatu is involved. And this fire element has the characteristic of heat. Its function is to mature or ripen other material phenomena, and its manifestation is as a continuous supply of softness. Both heat and cold are modes in which the fire element is experienced. And cold is actually considered to be the absence of heat. So in the absence of Dejodadu, and then we can follow that cold is there. Now, the air or wind element is the principle of motion and pressure. Its characteristic is distension, vitambana in the Pali scriptural language. Its function is to cause motion in the material phenomena. And it is manifested as conveyance to other places. Its proximate cause is the other three great essentials. It is experienced as tangible pressure. Taken together, the four great essentials are founded upon the earth element held together by the water element, maintained by the fire element, and distended by the air element. Now, Previously, we observed a bodily formation such as a pain, or, or no, we, yeah, well, we superficially looked at certain some sensation and qualified it as certain pain upon closer. Invest, mindful investigation, we come to see that this pain itself is not an ultimate reality, but rather can be uh, further reduced to you know, the four elements that are present in um, varying degrees. So at times, in the case of uh, pain, let's say in the case of a hard pain, there would be more of the batawida, just so the earth element. In the case of, uh, let's say, a burning pain, dejodna down to the fire element would be more uh, predominant, although the others might still uh, be present to some extent. Now, When we see, at first, 
we might relate to the pain as my pain. My pain is giving me a hard time. However, when we've carefully investigated and dissected into elements, then what happens to this notion of my pain? It dissolves. There you go. It no longer has any meaning. Because what one sees are just certain elements at play, at play that certainly then make up what is typically referred to as a pain. And the pain, the term pain, would be just a construct, just a concept. Now, when seeing time and again that bodily, a, good, a great variety of bodily formations do consist of varying combinations of these four um, great certain elements, namely the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind or air element, sooner or later we might notice what? That we're terribly different from the material world around us? That we're something special? Made up of something very uh, let's say um, uh, subtle matter or so, or, or we are the same as. There you go. We're not different from the matter around us. No, that. For people who are greatly conceited, will lead to what? Fear. Maybe fear, <laughs> sure. Suffering. Fire suffering, yes. And uh, maybe inducing a little bit of humility. And what this also does is that it will mm, help to bring about a certain detachment from you know, formations that bodily formations that previously we may have related to as my this my that no and that is helpful or not definitely not helpful getting becoming detached from bodily formations as seeing, no longer seeing them as my this and that. That's helpful, there you go. Now, this is extremely helpful for the further deepening of our meditation practice and for this process, uh, this gradual process 
of letting go of formations. Now, with this kind of an contemplation of certain the elements, Datu Vavatana, in the, the Pali the scriptural language, um, further um, or certain concepts you know, fall away. Now, when we come to a retreat, we come as a woman, as a man, as an LGBT person, correct? <laughs> and we come as an individual, as a personality. Yes or no? Yes. Now, and when we first, during the first few days of our intensive retreat, when we observe the rising and falling movement of the other predominant objects, we will typically still relate to our experiences in terms of man, woman, LGBT person, and so on. Right? However, after, let's say, this is just guessing, a week or more, when our mindfulness has become really, or quite certainly strong, relatively continuous, mind is concentrated, intuitive wisdom is certainly there. And we're deeply absorbed in the mindful observation of some predominant object, like the rising falling movement of the abdomen. What about that notion of a man or a woman or an LGBT person um, observing here the rising and falling movement of the abdomen? What happens? It goes away. It falls away. And what remains is just the object and the observing mind and the observing and the knowing mind. And so this distinction and this self-referencing as here is or I am a man and as a man I'm observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen or I'm a woman and as a woman I'm observing the rising falling movement of the abdomen or some other object and so on that simply falls away that category that way of thinking is no longer relevant and hence in terms of Dhamma, are we equals or not? Would you say so? Yes or no? I didn't understand the same Oh, in terms of Dhamma, does the Dhamma distinguish or discern between man, woman, LGBT person or not? Has not. Eventually not. There you go. So that distinction makes no more, or, or it simply is not relevant anymore. And the same thing goes certainly for 
the distinction as seeing oneself as a personality, as a VIP person, and all of that, it's no longer relevant. Now, briefly, yesterday, time was mentioned, and we've seen time is yet another concept, but not and not an ultimate reality. Now, a concept that is very difficult to, first of all, recognize and then to overcome is the one of a self, of a truly existing self. So we we will be, especially beginning retreatants and non-meditators, will have a strong sense of a self, of a being, of a person, individual, and um, having a particular identity, maybe um, we might refer to this as an ego. And we may think that objects are under our control, that 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 which thinks, wills, and feels, knows and sees, and also that which appropriates and owns the principle of thought and action in man and woman, the subject of of conscious spiritual experience, that's me. And that very notion of self seems so permanent, unchanging, seems everlasting, is beyond certain any uh, questioning. It just is a reality. No. The Buddha, based on his own investigations into uh, reality, made an extremely important uh, discovery that, in the end, that, uh, in a sense of a permanent, everlasting self, is rather uh, questionable. No. With this uh, understanding, the Buddha was contradicting other philosophers and uh, leaders of religious sects quite a bit. And on 
several on plenty of occasions he you know, the Buddha had to approve his certain point in uh, discussions whether a self truly exists or not. Now, one way to find out whether that self truly exists or not is or consists in undertaking mindfulness and meditation as part of which intuitive wisdom arises and when one applies mindful attention to whatever predominant object arises in this five fathom long uh, being then sooner or later one comes to know what? One comes to know There's no abiding self amongst the others. And there are just two categories Two categories of materiality and mentality. That's all. And so this uh, analysis into the what is called a being is perceived to be a being, and that certainly uh, shows that ultimately there or or shows that the belief in the existence of a self is rather mistaken. And so at least at times that belief will be weakened. When we go on diligently and mindfully exploring predominant physical and mental formations, we recognize that these same physical and mental formations are connected by what? Cause and effect, and uh, which has certain implications in terms of the notion of a self, Namely, when these physical and mental formations are connected by way of, or linked by way of, cause and effect, with this, the self as a controlling entity no longer um, makes sense. And it simply um, then um, gets, or that's just another way of seeing that it is questionable. Now, typically we attribute certain qualities to this notion of a self, namely that it is permanent and that certainly this self, so-called self, is in control. 
So we decide what is going to happen. Things will happen according to our decisions. However, a very careful investigation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen and other predominant body and mental formations will quite soon reveal that formations, and this concerns all condition formations, that formations are not permanent but impermanent, that they are not conducive to happiness but conducive to suffering, and because it is this way, they just cannot be uh, the self or under the control of the self that is viewed as being permanent and as being in control. The Buddha had a fourth line of arguing this particular point by saying, let us assume that the self exists and that it has um, this controlling capacity, governing capacity. So if one were to assume this, it should be possible to say, it should be possible to uh, say, I don't want to get sick, but reality, is that reality? It's not reality. And it should be possible to say, old age is something that's not for me, maybe for others, and certainly so. <laughs> and uh, is there any exemption? No exemption. And again, along the same line, one should be in a position to say, well, um, death will, or death shall not occur in my case. I'm a special case. And certain reality, as we all know, is certainly not supporting this aspect whatsoever. And so, in these four, or by way of these four different approaches, the Buddha made it very clear that uh, there, that the notion of a permanent, everlasting self that is in control, that takes decisions, etc., that this is questionable. Now, are we called to blindly believe this? Not. By all means, not. But rather for us to investigate for ourselves what is actually happening. Now, when we do carefully investigate what is truly happening, then we might certainly find that notions such as I am or I shall mm, possess material form or I 
have been this or that in the past are forms of imagining that arise due to potent underlying defilements. Dormant or latent defilements such as ignorance, awija, such as craving, such as conceit. And on top of this uh, uh, wrong view. And when these unwholesome mental factors or defilements come together with the imagining I am, then we believe in this and we take it to be uh, a reality, an ultimate uh, reality. And we then uh, might uh, go on to believe as to believe not or imagine not only I am but I will be or I shall be and also with regard to the past I was and then more specifically I will be this or that I am this or that or I was this or that in uh, the past and now by carefully and mindfully examining what is happening from moment to moment in our meditation practice and by seeing formations as being rather impermanent, as being subject to suffering, and then as being subject to anatta rather than atta. And furthermore, seeing that with a further deepening of one's practice, formations are clearly arising and they're clearly passing away with this any notion of the eternity of a self that notion also starts falling away or or let's say crumbling and then falling away In the course of our meditation practice, we there will be times when we observe a predominant object. At first, there may be some self-referencing involved relating to you know, the material or mental uh, object or formation as my or mine and then over time it could happen that the self-referencing falls away and what remains is just the object and the observation of it and knowing its nature and then later on the sense of self comes back 
And so with this, certain retreatants are likely to find out for themselves that this notion of a self with regard to all objects sometimes is there, sometimes is not there. And that Satna then increases uh, our questions about uh, um, the permanence of a self and the eternity of uh, this notion of a self. Now, when we carefully investigate no, when, when the hearing process takes place prior to a careful and mindful investigation of such a hearing process, we would typically relate to this experience as I am hearing. It's very common. Nothing unusual at all. However, we would bring mindfulness to this very, very hearing process, we find out that it's actually a pretty um, neutral or objective process. There's a sound, the sound waves impinge on the ear or the ear uh, sensitivity, the coming together of those two then brings about hearing consciousness coming into the three namely the sound and certainly then the um, hearing or the ear sensitivity and hearing consciousness the coming together of that and then represents hearing contact based on hearing contact arises a feeling at what one feels that one perceives and is there any self in, involved in this process or not? There's not. And so this notion of I am hearing turns out to be yet another concept. And the Venramasi Sayadu instructs us to go beyond concepts and suddenly to carefully investigate what is truly happening. And so there's many, many things to be explored in this certain manner. The seeing process would be just another example. Now, when the sense of self becomes increasingly questionable, of course, this leads you know, to the um, or begs sudden further you know, questions, namely, who is it who is feeling? Who is it who is tasting the food um, being served at breakfast and at lunch? Now, in this regard, it can be said. Who, in the absence of a self, is it that has a feeling or other sensations? The answer is that there is no one who feels 
but rather there is feeling, which is a totally different proposition. Likewise, it is not correct to ask who becomes old, who dies, and who is reborn, but rather the correct statement is there is old age, there is um, death and rebirth. And when we keep experiencing formations in this uh, manner, then um, it becomes increasingly obvious that whatever bodily form or whatever bodily bodily sensation we experience, whatever feeling we experience, whatever perception, volitional formation or consciousness we experience, none of this is mine. None of those are I am and none of those are myself. And when that when one starts seeing formations in that way, one sees with correct wisdom, this is not mine, this is this I am not, this is not myself. Now in terms of using designations such as I and my and mine and you and you, yours and certainness, so on personal pronouns, possessive pronouns, we have to distinguish between conventional reality and ultimate reality. Now, the Samyutta Nikaya, in its first volume, section 14, in a discourse entitled uh, The Arahant contains uh, the following two stanzas. When a retreatant is an Arahant consummate with taints destroyed, one who bears her or his final body? Is it because the person has come upon conceit that he or she should say, I speak? That he would say, they speak, he or she would say, they speak to me. No knots exist for one with conceit abandoned. So that's your around. For him or her, all knots of conceit are consumed. So they've been uprooted. Though the wise one has transcended the conceived, he or she might still say, I speak. He or she might say too, they speak to me. Skillful knowing the world's parlance, 
one uses such terms as mere expressions or designations, as mere concepts. So the ability, one may still use personal or possessive pronouns, but know very well that these are just concepts and do not represent ultimate reality. Now, allow me to conclude this discourse by concluding again with the words mentioned already in the previous discourse, namely on um, practicing as if one's clothes or head were on fire. One might look on equanimously at one's blazing clothes or head, paying no attention to them, but so long as one has not made breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths as they really are, in order to make the breakthrough, one should arouse extraordinary desire, make an extraordinary effort, stir up zeal and enthusiasm, be unremitting and exercise mindfulness and clear comprehension. And may it be so, may it lead all of us to the breakthrough. And this is it for the discourse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.